Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Phew, I was going to say I had my work cut out this morning, but I won't have my work cut out because I've got the assistance of David Yates, who is newsboy from the Daily Mirror. Uh, Dave, good morning. Uh, it's good morning. another Sunday, and that normally means that there's some sort of uh, bomb that's been dropped overnight that we have to deal with straight off the top of the show, uh, and it, 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 this has been the case again. We're going to talk about it more in Talking Points later, but Paul Kimmage in the Irish Independent has, has written the, the latest chapter in, in his, sort of turning into a, a bit of a novella, really, on... Um, the use of performance-enhancing drugs in Irish racing, or the use of drugs to enhance performance in Irish racing, and he has picked up on his interview with, with Jim Bolger that we, we saw from last year and has sort of fleshed the story out a little bit um, with relation to uh, who the whistleblower was, and, and that whistleblower, uh, he's saying, was Stephen Mann, uh, the man who is uh, currently suspended by the Irish Horse Racing uh, Regulatory uh, Board for, for Welfare Issues. Um, Dave, just a, a quick word on this. Yeah, it's an impressive body of work, this by uh, Paul Kimmage. Uh, in, in this instalment, as you say, um, Stephen Mann is, is the principal character. Um, he talks of um, a, a, another, or another whistleblower that's, mm. uh, called John Doe, uh, who talks of practices that he experienced while working for Trainer X, which includes uh, corticosteroids being used by uh, used like salt, I think it says, uh, two brand names of testosterone that are routinely uh, applied uh, to the, the, the horses in uh, Trainer X's care. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating read. Obviously, that there is, not obviously, there is also input uh, as to Stephen Mann's relationship with... Uh, with Lynn Hillier, of contacting her to, to uh, discuss what he knows and what he's been told. Of course, Lynn Hillier, of, uh, the head of anti-doping, essentially, at the IHRB. Um, it's a very good read, and it's sure to uh, trigger further comment. Mm. Of course, what we don't have and what we still are looking for in this sense is names, and we know why there aren't any names, because obviously that lights mm. uh, a legal fire. Yeah, so what we've got now is it's not just Jim Bolger as a lone voice. We've also got the added testimony of Stephen Mann, and he has been, in a sense, discredited for another part of his profession. Um, but we await the next instalment of this, which we assume will come next week. The Irish Horse Racing Heritage Board have uh, issued me a statement this morning. They say, all information received by the IHRB is assessed and acted upon, may include escalating to relevant authorities. All information received is treated on a confidential basis, and um, more on that in a little while. Let's talk about um, another triumph 
for Ireland, and that took place in the Grade 1 race at Ascot yesterday. Fakir Duderi came and exploited a good opportunity found for him by Joseph O'Brien, was ridden by Mark Walsh to a gritty success over two for gold. And the questions afterwards, Dave, was with many of the leading home fancies disappointing, particularly Dashiell Drasher and San Calvados. Was this just a portent of things to come in a few weeks' time? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was how I, I wrote it in the Sunday Mirror, which was perhaps a little bit of a contrivance because uh, the, the, the point that... I was trying to make was that um, if Fakir Dudery can do this to uh, the home guard, then what's Alaho and what are the other Irish uh, challengers going to do? But that's being unfair, I think, to Fakir Dudery it, it, to sort of almost paint him as, well, if, if he can do this, imagine what the others are going to do. This horse is a rattling good chaser in his own right, isn't he? This, is, this was his third mm. victory at the highest level. He won the Melling Chase by a, a thumping 11 lengths. Uh, at Aintree last April, so it, it, that, as I say, it was a, it was a bit of a red top tabloid contrivance for which I apologise. But the point is, it is a contrivance there. you're going to be using several more times in the lead up to the <laughs> festival. It may well be, um, but but the the fact remains that I feel it, when we look at the the twenty three versus five mm. thrashing that the home uh, runners had last year um, the initial I, I, I spent the first six months after Cheltenham thinking oh, well that was probably an outlier things will, things will, will at least go back in uh, the other direction I'm nothing like that. Richard Forrestal wrote a really instructive piece I thought in the Racing Post crunching the numbers essentially about three weeks ago yeah. uh, and, and that told us that in terms of the Irish representation at the uh, National Hunt Festival, we should expect pretty much the same. And I, th I think that's probably going to be the, the same again. I mean, uh, the, the handicaps will be the sort of, the, in it, if we were well, to use it, election uh, parlance, the sort of, they're the, the, the battleground states or constituencies, aren't they? Well, I'll come to the why no one's going to be happy with the handicaps in a, in a moment. But Tom Siegel made an interesting point earlier in the week that if you want to back Ireland to win by miles, then you might be, might be worth waiting till after the third race because the British have got, the, at the moment, the favourite and third favourite for the Supreme Novices hurdle, so Gerhard may not run in that race. And then Edward Stone is favourite for the Arkle, and the third race is a race that the Irish virtually never win. What's that, the three-mile handicap The three-mile handicap is chase, the, the Ultima. Yeah. So you might be worth waiting till halfway through day one before you get stuck in, but then who knows, you know, Willie Mullins could win the first three races and be done with it, we'll all go home. Yeah, very easily. I mean, uh, the, the, um, the talk of a, a home stranglehold on the Supreme Novices, it... Everything is relative, isn't it? I mean, mm. it's just the fact that we've... There's no the, stranglehold when you've got Sir Gerhard <laughs> running exactly. against you. You know, we've got... If he does we've go got there. The, the, the first and third favourites. Now, relatively speaking, compared to looking at uh, the markets for the other grade ones, yes, that is a home stranglehold. But in if, if we were... I, I've been doing a lot this week looking at old um, newspaper reports from 1972 and 1987. Mm -hmm. um, Bueller's champion hurdle of 72 and see you then's of 87 and of course you know if um if we were talking about uh, british train runners being the first and third favorites for a grade one back in those days we'd obviously we'd almost be inclined to say well, what's what's gone wrong in this case then yeah you know but our times change they do uh, well, one man who could have some impact 
on races at the Cheltenham Festival. If the form of yesterday was anything to go by, his trainer Sam Thomas, who's already won a Welsh National this season. He was at the double at Ascot yesterday with Sky Tastic and No Risk at All. They were both, um, good risk at all, I should say. They were both um, owned by Di Walters, and Sam joins me on the line now. Uh, morning, Sam. Yeah, good form. Thank you very much. Let's uh, let's talk about the, the winner of the feature handicap hurdle first of all. Good risk at all. I mean, this is a horse who did look ridiculously well handicapped, but I'm not even sure you could have um, uh, expected a performance of that emphasis, could you? Yeah, I mean, sort of bit of a program to be like this, and um, you know, in all, in all honesty, like his conditions there yesterday, like not because he won uh, the listed bump for Cheltenham in heavy ground and. He just used to hand very well, but uh, yeah, he, he had a, a nice low weight yesterday and, um, you know, a strong run rate. It was just nice that he was able to switch off out of the back and sort of keep out of trouble. So, um, no, it's just lovely to watch when he can come like that. Yeah, I mean, he's hacked up over, a, admittedly, a fairly exposed field by nine lengths and the others are beaten miles. Difficult to know what the handicapper's going to do. Are you inclined to give him the option of still going to a novice race at the Cheltenham Festival? Um, I think, so. we would have to, like you say, see what happens on Tuesday there when he gets his mark, but... Um, yeah, it's going to be a huge step up in grade if, if we're going to be running in the in, in the novice, to be honest with you. And um, yeah, I, I think I think we'd be probably leaning towards a handicap to try and try and expose that market. You know, so hopefully we've got a bit of wiggle room again. Which handicap would be your your favourite one? Uh, look, I, I think the Coral would be the obvious one, really. You know, um, he obviously stays very well, and um, you know, a good 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 strong run gallop like it always is, it would, would definitely suit him. So. Um, I think that I think the link was another entry in the Martin Pike as well, but um, yeah, I, I think the Coral would be the, the obvious race. So the Coral Cup, and do you think there's a, it's a, you know, it's a slightly stiff, stiffer test of stamina than he than he than he had yesterday in terms of distance? Anyway, um, do you think he'll he'll just get as far as you want him to get? I think so. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 bred to stay, and um, yeah, like you say, you know, there weren't many horses finishing like he did yesterday, um, but um, so I don't think there's any doubts in, in, in further anyway. And what what's the plan with Sky Tastic? Um, I think we'll more, more than likely give Charlton Smith this time round. Nick, I think, uh, like you say, he, he sort of proved his sort of until yesterday, and that he sort of just he's an outright galloper. And I think you know you could really see him winding it up at the entry. So he's he's likely to head to Aintree. Both uh, both wins for Die Walters. Big day for your your main owner, and also for this man here, Charlie Deutsch. Uh, it's good to see that it's not just your old boss Venetia who's recognising his talents. <laughs> Yeah, and he's just full of confidence, and as, as we all know in this game, when, you, when you've got confidence, you, you, you're just able to sort of make things a bit differently. And um, yeah, he's just a great man to have on board. And you know, you don't need to give him instructions. He's just a he's a horseman, and um, yeah, he's a real joy to watch uh, when 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 you know he's like a clear motion when it's going well. Sam, thanks so much. Well done yesterday. Thanks, team. Thanks, Sam. Sam Thomas at the double yesterday at Ascot. Line wasn't great there, Dave, but we got the gist of it. Uh, good horse, good risk at all. Very well handicapped off 127 after the Coral Cup. Yeah, and it's really good to see uh, Sam Thomas, his his career really sprouting wings, isn't it, over the last couple of seasons. Um, he's a, a very easygoing man to deal with. Uh, he never gets prickly when you talk about uh, his... Uh, the... the the travails that he had during a, jockey, a yeah. during a, a very successful career as a jockey. Let's not uh, forget that. But the media, I'm not blaming the media. Obviously, part of it that they, they tend to concentrate not on the triumph aboard Denman, but but perhaps the the, the unseat from uh, from Big Bucks, etc. And uh, he never gets prickly. When he started training, he um, he carried 
loads of good wishes with him and mm. it's taken a couple of seasons for uh, that to get off the ground obviously the move to uh, Di Walter's training complex has really has really uh, enabled him to uh, to almost start afresh over the last couple of years and the results are coming and uh, it's a it's a uh, he's a universally popular person mm. I think and I, I'm I'm really glad to see that that uh, those results are on an upward curve. Well, talking of people and horses to whom there's an awful lot of goodwill, let's uh, talk about Goshen in second victory in the Kingwell Hurdle yesterday under Jamie Moore. Uh, here's the headline in the, in the trade paper, Quirky Goshen delights crowd in Kingwell Thriller. There were just four runners, but Goshen and Adagio, the horse who was uh, rated to give him the most to do, served as a treat. And Adagio had to come to the outside of Goshen, or the inside of Goshen, if you like, because Jamie Moore determinedly wanted the stand side rail that may have been the victory uh, that may have been the difference between defeat and victory possibly I, I felt at this point watching this live in the Ascot press room that Adagio was going to get Goshen so did everybody else he was 33 to 1 on in right on okay on Betfair and uh, it's a it's a determined performance by the the quirky winner who definitely goes what a neck or so down there would you say oh, definitely yeah um but on the run-in, he really f finds for presser, pressure and forges ahead. He'd returned to winning form at, at Sandown a couple of weeks earlier. And scored, he scored by 15 lengths mm. that day. And he's an enigma, isn't he, Goshen? Um, he's just, his, uh, I suppose his, still his career-defining moment, in a sense, was that uh, last flight on seats in... Uh, the triumph hurdle a couple of years ago, but you know it, it, it's not necessarily early days uh, for him now. But certainly, we've seen much more encouraging signs, haven't we, in the the latter part of this season for a horse who it, it would you know the public. We will come on later in the program to uh, what it is that attracts uh, the 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 public to to horse racing, and I think certainly. Um, Goshen being a something of an idiosyncratic horse, in, you only have to look at his results to see that, and obviously the family that are associated with him, the Moors, then big race success for him on you know, whatever stages they choose to go to is obviously something that's, uh, th that's going to be mm. good for us in the media, isn't it? You feel that Goshen's one of those horses, well, you know that Goshen's one of those horses for all sorts of reasons. He's woven deep into the into the heart of of Jamie Moore and he spoke uh, very warmly about this horse in an interview yesterday with Alex Steedman. Another super Saturday for the Moors, Porticello getting the job done yeah. up at Hado. This fella, one year on from that sort of Lazarus-like comeback yeah. performance here, Jamie, what was that like today? Oh, it's, it's, it's emotional to be honest. Um, he's, yeah, he, he showed so much guts today. Like he's ran Lingfield a month ago, then he went sand down two weeks ago he's had hard races both times and I know people call him names but he showed all guts then you know he, he, I, I said to Scoo two hours I think you've got me and then fair play to the horse he really he knuckled down and battled as hard as he could you know so I'm just really proud of him and Steve and Dad you know it's, it's, it's nice that he's uh, he's won another nice prize he's I mean they can call him what he likes. He's box office to watch either yeah, way. And his, yeah. his career has been like that pretty much starts it to now, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it has, you know. Um, but he's, like I've said before, he's, he's he's a nervous type of horse, you know. And I think he's trained by someone 
who mucks him out, grooms him, knows him inside out, and that's the key to him, I think, more than anything. You know? And riding him, how much communication during the race is there with you, with your hands? How much is there actually with your voice? There is a lot. There is a lot. Um, he knew where the stable yard. I'm not saying he's ungenuine, but he knew where he came out, so I had to pull my stick through. I had to talk to him the whole way down to start, keep him calm. Things were flying around and that, and he doesn't like that, you know? Um, and I've, I've had, I had to get hard on him, don't get me wrong. Um, but then I thought I had the battle one half out straight, managed to put the stick down, and he still he knuckled in then without the stick. He got rolling without with the stick, and then he got... Once he hit top gear, you don't have to carry on using it, you know? A bit tight to one down the back again, two up, but he didn't have come for you at the last. Yeah, he, he did, yeah. yeah you, you're never going to meet everything spot on. Um, I mean... He came up long one day and it all ended in tears. And you, you, you know, so um, but no, he's just just proud of the guts he showed today. You know, because with the right-handed, he's, he's so much better right-handed. Yeah. Is there a temptation to go to, to punch you with him and, and try and take on a big one? I mean, again? we went there last year. I remember jumping three out and I, I was going a right gallop mm. and honeysuckle just like I stood still, and I thought. Can't live with that, what you know. Do do? Yeah. yeah, well, there's nothing I could do. He couldn't run no faster. I can push you no harder, and you know. So, but maybe um, I see what Dad wants to do. You know, I see what Dad wants to do. Well, it was a good day for the Moors because not only did Jamie win on Goshen at uh, Wincanton, but brother Josh was victorious aboard Porticello in the Victor Lodorum hurdle at Haydock Park, which has down the years been something of a trial for the, the triumph hurdle. I think having won this and the finale at Chepstow, even if he's not guaranteed his ideal conditions at Cheltenham, Dave, they ought to give it a crack. Yeah. The, well, on Wednesday, Gary Moore said that Porticello wouldn't go for the triumph hurdle unless the ground at Cheltenham was um, good to soft or softer. I think yesterday he may have cranked that up a notch and said soft ground for this horse to run. So we will see. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult opportunity to pass up, isn't it, when you've got a horse of, of this ability and in this form. I mean... Couldn't really have done an awful lot more there yesterday, could he? And, and it, you know, you don't have to have long memory. We've been talking about Goshen two years ago. We were going into the Cheltenham Festival saying, well, is he quite the right type of horse for the, for the Triumph Hurdle? Will he go that way round? Well, we know he doesn't now, but he did that day. Uh, will the ground be a bit quick for him? Will he be vulnerable to some of those nippier types, etc.? What about the Irish? Comes, comes to the last 15 clear. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see. I mean, the, the um, if... My, well, according to what, what Gary Moore said yesterday and on Wednesday, if we get a dry week at Cheltenham where we start on ground that's somewhere between mm. good, soft and soft and we don't have any rain, and we, we should be used to this by now, shouldn't yeah. we? Like we get, we, we're used to it, it hammering down with rain all winter and soft and heavy ground fall. Not so much this year, admittedly. And then Cheltenham week, suddenly... The sun shines and everything dries out, and if if that happens, then it may well be that we we don't see this horse in the triumph. But uh, I'd love to see him there. I must say, yeah, heroic performance in the Grand National trial, which was pretty grim to watch in in many respects. From from the galloping bear, uh, it, it was a great performance for him. Wonderful triumph for his trainer Ben Clark and uh, jockey Ben Jones back in the big time. Uh, he was the jockey, of course, who won the Hennessy of a couple of years ago on Derasher Counter. Uh, but this race yesterday was as much about the performance of the runner-up Bristol de May as it was the winner, if not more so, Dave. Yeah, it was. It was a, um, a we would have expected 
attritional conditions in, in this race, wouldn't we? And Bristol de May under the stands rail, it, it, it all looks so good, doesn't it? Until they get to the final fence and then suddenly you feel, right, well, maybe this isn't all uh, cut and dried. It's here that, that the, the leader starts to struggle and is collared in the end quite readily. It's one of those races that in the end you, you, you can hardly believe the winning distance, which I think is about nine lengths, but that's indicative I suppose of the conditions and, and to what extent they've sapped the energy out of Bristol de May but um, we should say that Ben Clark's had a, a license since September and this mm. is a, a, a real landmark success for him he said afterwards that if we did see the horse again this year then it may be in the Irish National at Fairy House but um, obviously they're, they're, they're looking longer term I think Okay, well, there weren't many horses who made conditions at Haydock Park look straightforward yesterday, but one horse who did was the giant Hillcrest, who enhanced his already significant reputation by taking the Albert Bartley. Will he run in the race of the same name at the Cheltenham Festival? Henry Daly joins me on the line now, and it was a, a centrepiece of a terrific treble as well, because two further winners at Ascot, including Fortescue, who has the Grand National entry. Henry, morning. 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 All, all well with all three yesterday? Yes, all good, thank you. Yeah. Good and, and what a what a terrific day for the for the whole team. Um, I, I guess you went into to yesterday afternoon with significant hopes, but I'm guessing that exceeded them. <laughs> I did that two weeks ago and it went properly wrong. So I was a bit more with slightly more trepidation yesterday, but I was thrilled to get to have three. It was fantastic. I mean, Hillcrest looks such a sort of unflappable horse, really. In addition to everything we've said about his size, his scope, his potential, his ability. He looks as though nothing in the world bothers him too much. Is that a, a fair reflection of it? Yeah, it is very. He's got a fantastic brain for the game of racing. He is just, he finds it easy, obviously, but also he is very competitive with it without being overly sort of, I suppose, charged would be a way of saying it. So he manages to economise his efforts, which is probably why he's the only horse yesterday who looked to hit the line hard at, at Haydock, even though he'd gone quite hard early. Now, you've been very and sensibly circumspect about the whole Cheltenham thing with this horse. Are you, in a sense now, simply forced to go there because of his monstrous ability? <laughs> um, luckily, uh, we had a brief chat, Nick Meager and I, Trevor's racing manager, um, afterwards, and th there is absolutely no pressure from him or the, the, the Hemmings side of the executors and things to go there it is very much keep doing what you think is best for the horse I think I don't know I found it very odd yesterday he did a, a much much faster time than the Rendlesham and the the other three mile in the per temps I mean he just does appear to gallop and it's <laughs> very fast which as a racehorse could go that's a pretty pretty large advantage I know it sounds very simple, but often we, we complicate things to the point where we, we can't see the obvious in front of us. And his, his ears were pricking after the line as well, suggesting he hadn't exactly exerted himself as much as he ought to have done in, well, in, in those conditions. Tom, who looked after him, said he blew for, exact, for less than 10 minutes. So what would, what would be normal for a horse like that in those conditions? Well, in those conditions, they can blow for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, half an hour. He barely had a blow at all. 
So he's, so, he's, he's a bit again, of a freak, really, isn't he? Look, any horse who's that size, it's not normal for them to be good hurdlers, is it? And he's won two listed races, which not many novices do. Um, so, no, I mean, it is, it is fairly odd at this stage. And, and big horses like that, we tend to assume that, that soft ground suits them. Is, is, that a, is that too ready an assumption on our part with him? Well, he won on good to soft at Aintree in the year. He won his bumper on nearly good ground. Mick Meagher was worried enough about it when, we, when he won at Weatherby to go and walk the course because he thought it might be a bit fast for him. Um, he said it was absolutely fine, so we ran him. Um, so I don't think it's a big... Uh, he doesn't appear to be particularly ground-dependent at this stage. You had two winners at Ascot as well. Is Fortescue now a cheeky Grand National outsider, do you think? He's right on the cusp there on one four three. Oh, um, the plan has been for... He's been here since he was three, so that's for five years to run him in the 2022 Grand National. Come off it. <laughs> I promise you. I, I swear to God that's... Next, next, you're, next you're going to tell me... Next, no. you're going to tell me, with the owner's grandson riding him? No. With, with Tim Nixon, who owns him, every single horse of homebreds that arrives here, he gives you a... He says, right. He said, well, we'll look forward to that running in the National when they first turn up here in 2022. So there you are. It's been the plan. <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it is a bit of a fairy story. I mean, and it is the, the, the owner, breeder's grand, uh, grandson riding him as well, Hugh Nugent. Um, is he a horse that could actually figure in a national, do you think? Look, he gallops, he stays, and he jumps very nicely. Well, what do you want? Mm. You know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We've got to get in it, and it will be very, very tight. I think this will put him above the other horse, I'm not sure, in the um, pecking order for how... The ten, the one four three mark works, but it just—I'm not certain. But all the same, it, it'll it'll be very tight if he gets in. Okay, and I I didn't want to let you go without asking you to um, pay your respects to to Robert Chug, who had a, a huge impact on on national hunt racing and breeding. who's very sadly died at the age of of seventy nine. Um, I didn't think there would be any better man than you this morning, Henry. To, well, to, to let everybody know what, what sort of impact he made. It's so sad that 79 is very young, and especially for Juggy, because he just was always full of life and verve. And he was one of the, those men that knew an awful lot about horses. He knew more than most people, and forgotten more than most people will ever know. And he was just, he was tremendous around the sales, and that he was just a great man for the game of national hunt racing. And it is just tragic that he died so early. And you say 79, for him, I, I, I couldn't believe he was 79 because he was always so young at heart, so sprightly and so, so, so vital. I couldn't agree more. I, I was very surprised to read that this morning. I did sort of know it, but I sort of, when you see it written down, he's 79, you're like, wow, was he? And I, he was just, ah. Oh. And he was so good with the sort of the, I remember years ago taking Mark, Jimmy Daly there um, when we were looking around the three-year-olds and things and he Jim just thought Chuggy was just aged, he was about six or seven, he drove the quad boat and he thought he was the best man he'd ever met in his entire life. Absolutely loved it.
spe special memories of a man who was very important to national hunt racing breeding, Robert Chug, who's sadly died at the age of 79. Henry, he would have enjoyed all your winners yesterday, particularly, I think, Hillcrest. Thanks so much for talking to me. Not at all. Good to speak to you. I'm not sure what happened. There were a few technical problems. Apologies for that. My, uh, my next guest today may be considered to be one of the young rising stars of the weighing room, but he is, in fact, in his 11th season with a jockey's license. It started off incredibly successfully. It's not all been plain sailing since, but now the ship is very much on the right course. With 51 winners and counting this season and many big race victories to his name, principally for Colin and Joe Tizard, uh, things are all good for Brendan Powell, who's with me now. Brendan, great to have you in the in the studio, and, and thanks for coming in. We've been uh, hoping to catch up for a little while. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Nick. Is uh yeah, good opportunity. And, and it's always it's always good to, to catch people when when things are going well, when when you're on the crest of a wave. But it's been a it's been a pretty interesting journey to get here, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's been uh, pretty colourful, to say the least, and plenty of ups and downs. But um, this season's been been uh, been brilliant. So um, you know, a couple of years ago, I didn't think I'd be where I uh, where, where I am now. So what were you thinking a couple of <coughs> years ago? Did you think were you, were you at any sort of a crossroads about whether a career as a rider was still was still viable. Yeah, it never crossed my mind to to sort of give up or anything, but it was just a case of a bit of extra, you know, hard graft, get your head down and try and try and get back to to where I was. Obviously, it started out very well, Nick, and um, you know, I hit hit that bit of a lull. But um, yeah, like I said, plenty of hard work, and thank, thankfully, I'm back riding some nice horses. So, so how how easy was it for you? In the early days, yeah, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> when I when I started riding, I'd already done a couple of seasons pony racing in Ireland. So when I, you know, when I had my first couple of rides, I was probably a year ahead of a lot of other people at my age. So that was a big advantage. And um, you know, when I started at Tizard, I was getting a lot of opportunities on good horses. And you know, looking back, you could say maybe I went to my claim a bit quick. But at the time, you can't really turn down winners. Um, so it, it, it was, it, it was sort of. I did think it was relatively easy at that stage. Yeah. I thought of you a little bit the last couple of weeks because Colin was talking about his grandson Freddie Ginger, yeah. who's just started riding and has ridden a couple of winners. He said he finds it straightforward and he, he doesn't have any nerves when he goes to the races. Was that a bit like you when you were that age? Same sort of deal, pony racing background, slid into it easy. Yeah, and and you know when you're 16, 17, you, you don't you don't think about it. You just you get out and and ride on natural instinct, which which is something you, you should do anyway. Um, but as you get a little bit older, you, um, you, you you there is days there where you almost try a bit too hard. But when when you're younger, it all just mm. flows naturally. And like I said, with young Freddie, he's, he's he's doing you know he's had a fantastic start, and uh, he'll definitely be keeping me on my toes anyway. So when you went to Ireland to, to go pony <coughs> racing, was that quite unusual for a? Obviously, your, your dad's Irish, you're from an mm. Irish family, but from a British-born and based rider to go to Ireland and pony race, was that was that quite a, a shock to the system in terms of the competitiveness of the of the people you were riding against? It was a little bit. I mean, there are a few people before me that that done it, and um, so I left school when I was fourteen. So Did that you? Was kind of like my home school. How did you manage that? Well, um, after. Uh, I have to keep that bit quiet, but okay, yeah. you've you given it away now. <laughs> well, look, we told school I was going to get uh, homeschooled, so um, in the meantime, I packed my bags and moved out to Ireland. So I went to go and work for Adrian Maguire when I was fourteen. So I was working for him during the week, and then 
going pony racing on the weekends, then came back for the winter and and then did the same the following year. Um, but the but what they call the flapping in Ireland is it was a lot more competitive than the pony racing in England. So I thought it was quite a, quite a good idea to sort of go and sharpen me up a bit. Do you look back on it now and feel that you missed out leaving school at fourteen? Um, sometimes yes, but you know at the time the only thing I wanted to be was a jockey, and you know I might regret it in years to come when I need to get a job that needs qualifications. But um, it was the kind of risk I wanted to take, and and um, I, at the moment I don't regret it anyway. And at the time, how much how much fun were you having? Oh, a hell of a lot. I mean. You know, the, the thought of moving out there wasn't actually that daunting at the time when I was, you know, when I was, I was only 14 and it was it was more of an adventure really. I, I, I had a lot of friends in Ireland, so it did make it easier. I didn't have to move out there and not know anyone. So when I got out there, I knew a lot of people. So it was um, Ireland is kind of like my second home, and I made a lot of friends out there, and it was a great experience. Who looked after you? Well, like I said, I worked for Agent Maguire yeah. for the first year. And then the second year I went back, I went and lived with um, John Linehan, Eddie Linehan, who's a good um, bloodstock agent now. And uh, um, so they took me under their wing as well. What do you feel you learned? Um, I suppose it probably just turned me from, from a boy into a man, really. I had to sort of fend, my, fend for myself a little bit. Um, and in terms of racing, you know, the, like I said, the, the racing was very, very competitive and gives you that little bit of an edge when you come over when you're only 16. And who were you riding against that's still sort of going now and, and doing well? Um, off the top of my head, I mean, Ross Coakley, who's now based over here, he's doing well. Shane Gray, um, Gavin Sheehan, um, you know, and, and before me there was the likes of Paul Townend and Danny Mullins, so it was, it was a long, long list, yeah. yeah. So you came back and then started to launch the career proper over here. How did the connection with the Tizards come about? Um, I was amateur first. I went to work for John Joe Neal for seven or eight months. And I was only about eight stone in colours, so I decided to give it a go on the flat for a season. Went to work for the late John Hills. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought, well, I don't really want to ride out my claim on the flat and then have to go jumping. So I thought I'd better try and find a yard to go to. And I think it was actually my mum that mentioned going to Colin Tizard. Cause Joe actually rode for my father when he was training for a couple of seasons so I went down to Collins for a couple of mornings just to see how it was and uh, I, I really enjoyed it and so I stayed there. And things immediately started to started to gel and started to go well and you were being talked of as the as the as the next big thing how did that affect you at the time? At the time you probably think it's great because you're getting all this publicity but then I suppose there's a lot of pressure that comes with it as well. When you're only 16, and you're getting talked about as being, you know, the next, the next AP or you know, the best thing, you know, the best young rider since Andy Tunnell. And yeah, like I said at the time, you think it's, you think it's great, but then when there's a few days when things start to go wrong, it kind of does crumble down a little bit. And this, it, you know, I think the media do hype up a lot of young lads, and I think it can be quite unfair. I think you, you kind of you've got to try and nurture the, the younger the younger lads, you know, and, and I think the likes of Andrew Balding does a very good job at that with his apprentices, brings them on slowly and um, just tries, you know, any advice to anyone, just try and keep your feet on the ground, really. 
your your father sat in that chair. He had a very interesting career as a as a rider. To what extent could you discuss your your early career with him? To what extent were you were you sort of talking about it, and uh, and could he understand what what you were experiencing? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think when Dad was riding, he was. The, Took him a little while longer to get going, really. So I think when when he started get going, I think he was sort of you know, twenty or twenty one. So, but he's he's been he's been brilliant all the way through. Um, and I think he always did his best to try and keep keep my feet on the ground. You know when things were going well, and and likewise when things weren't going quite so well. You know, he's, um, as as much as you want um, constructive criticism. You know, when things are going right, you need to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's good to be told as well. So. so where where do you think the the wheels just came off a little bit? Um, I th- I think when when Joe finished riding, I was I think I must have only been eighteen or nineteen, and I was riding a lot of the horses then when Joe pa- packed up. I suppose at that age, um, I was still very young. Although I'd had a bit of experience, I was I was still quite young, and um, I think. One of the nails in the coffin was when Golden Chieftain fell at the last in the Midlands Grand National. Mm-hmm. I think before that, a couple of things hadn't quite gone right, and I think that was probably the nail in the coffin then. Um, and I think I was kind of... I wasn't getting pushed out, but I think a lot of the owners and Colin were wanting to use the best available, which is, you know, it's, it's their business. They're completely entitled to do that. And I was riding a bit for Jamie Snowden as well. Um, and um, yeah, kind of wheels fell off a little bit, and I was kind of left out on my own for a couple of seasons. So I had to sort of almost start start again, really, from the bottom. And was it a question of really the phone not ringing at all at that point? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I was I was going racing more than more than not going riding a lot of horses that didn't really have much of a chance but you know Nick there's a lot of jockeys in that way and I'm doing the exact same mm. thing so I, I, I'm, I don't want to feel sorry for myself I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me um, but there's a lot of jockeys that have gone through the same and, and a lot worse and um, there's a lot of very very good riders there that don't get anywhere near the opportunities that they their riding deserves so it's just uh, I'm just for, for very lucky to, to sort of get the opportunity back to riding for riding for good yards again Welcome back. News emerged a couple of weeks ago that we brought you on this programme that the Cheltenham Gold Cup had found a sponsor. There were anxious moments at the Jockey Club for sure because of the breakdown of the relationship with the previous sponsor, Magnus. Last year, Wellchild, the charity, lent its name to one of the most important races in the steeplechase in Canada. And now, a company that has been going since the late 18th century and which has lent its support previously to Cheltenham has stepped in to sponsor the Blue Ribbon event. That company is Boodles the well-known jeweller. Uh, Michael Wainwright is fifth generation of the family that uh, started this company. He's the managing director and he joins me now. Michael, um, good morning. Thanks for coming in. Morning, Nick. Morning. First obvious question, why are Boodles now sponsoring the Cheltenham Gold Cup? Well, it was an opportunity that came along that I simply hadn't anticipated. Martin St. Quinton, the chair of Cheltenham, called me up and said, hey, Mike, how do you fancy sponsoring the Gold Cup? This was on about January the 10th. I thought Brown Advisory were almost sort of home and hose to sponsor it, mm-hmm. but they fell out just before Christmas, unbeknown to me. So I thought, crikey, what, what a nice idea. I phoned my brother Nick, 
another Nick, who I'm in business with, who doesn't particularly like horse racing, but he was so supportive, and he almost said straight away on the phone, yeah, let's go for it, let's go for it. It's a really, really rare opportunity. Um, it was slightly serendipitous as well, because one or two other things had sort of fallen the right way for us to say yes. We, spon- we sponsored a big tennis tournament the last, well, before COVID for many, many years, and that's cancelled again this year. And we'd actually had quite a good Christmas. Us jewellers have got a bit of money in January, um, which we haven't a lot of the time. We've got far too many diamonds, sometimes <laughs> which we can't sell. Uh, and so we said yes, and here we are. So how big a part of your sponsorship portfolio is this? Just try and relativise this to other events and sporting occasions that you that you back. Oh, it's off the scale compared to anything we've done before. Seriously? Uh, we, sponsor a, we sponsor the Chester May meeting, yeah. um, which is really good for us because we've got three shops in the northwest. Chester May meeting is gorgeous. We're sponsoring the Chester Bar. Your, your company was, is northwest. It started in Liverpool. Started, Liverpool's yeah. our home. We've got a shop in Chester, literally right next door to the, to the race course. Uh, we've got a shop in Manchester. We've just opened one in Leeds, as it happens. So in the northwest, that May meeting is so on brand for us and provides a great opportunity um, for sponsorship. Um, but I have to say, my real love lies with Cheltenham. I've been there to virtually every festival since I was 17 or 18. Um, so Cheltenham really, really is, is what I absolutely love. But we sponsor a whole other range of mm. things. We sponsor the Chelsea Flower Show for the first time last year, which is very nice, but not on the same scale as this. We sponsor a lovely motor event called Salon Privé. Uh, we sponsor the Royal Ballet, because not all our customers like horse racing. They all like different things. So uh, we're a slightly sort of sports-biased board, so it's been f- fairly sort of focused on sports events. But it's quite nice to have the Royal Ballet in there as well. But in answer to your question, that this sponsorship out is, is as much as the rest of them put together and more. Uh, so the, the entities that you mentioned, the Chelsea Flower Show, uh, the Royal Ballet Salon Prix, I mean, they're all quite high end as, as, be, as befits your brand. Yeah. What are you hoping to get out of an event that, you know, spans the, the demographic that, that little bit more? Well, of course, Cheltenham is more mainstream, but I think Cheltenham is a luxury brand. We're a luxury brand. We like to call ourselves a luxury brand. I think Cheltenham, and the Cheltenham Festival in particular, is a luxury brand. I think it's a perfect fit for us. I really do. And firstly, all of our customers, we'll give them a jolly nice day out. We're going to have 100 customers there on Gold Cup Day, which is where I had my 60th birthday party in the final fence box a few years ago. So we're going to have a cracking good day then. Um, And it it is also, there is quite a... Um, a tie-up between a lot of our customers mm-hmm. and National Hunt Racing. A lot of them own horses. They love National Hunt Racing, so it's an opportunity to appease them. But, we, you know, that Cheltenham crowd is absolutely laced with people from industry, entrepreneurs. Um, our absolute um, prime customer is a business owner, an entrepreneur who owns his own business, possibly sells it, and th- there are a lot of those type of people at the festival. So I think it's a good fit for us. I mean, the thing that struck me was when you said your brother Nick wasn't particularly a racing fan, but he had given you the encouragement to go ahead and do it. So what does he see all of that, even though he hasn't got the same passion for the sport that you have? Can he see it from a more clinical, commercial viewpoint? He can. I think he realises that the the sponsorship of the Gold Cup hopefully will put us on a different level. I mean, I'm led to believe that up to 10 million people watch it through TV and streaming. So that is completely different from anything we've done before. It's a sort of marquee, it's a marquee sponsorship, isn't it? 
Uh, mm. And of course, you know, you're talking to someone who loves national yeah. and horse racing, which helps. I mean, if I didn't, I possibly wouldn't have been as enticed. Um, but I mean, I, I love the sport. We're not here forever, are we? We could afford to do it, and so, so we're going to give it a go. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's the question, really. Um, if, you, if you had no enthusiasm for it at all and you were just presented the, the dossier, yeah. how far would it have got? Would it have even got to first base? Because racing agonises all the time about why there aren't more of you. Well, it disappoints me, actually, that it probably wouldn't have got much beyond first base. I mean, there are companies out there who I really think should be sponsoring horse racing. Um, I mean, I've got friends involved at Savills. I know they sponsor in, in, oh, in Ireland, yeah. but they don't sponsor in the UK. Um, various other sort of interiors, comp- you know, interior designers. Um, one or two other companies I can think of who are members of Walpole, which is the best of British luxury. Mm-hmm. We're members of Walpole. Um, you know, they don't take the bait. It takes someone who really gets horse racing, I think, which is a shame because I think the value added from, from horse racing sponsorship for a, for a luxury brand is incredible. I mean, it gives you a chance to entertain your best customers when you are on show. And that is worth quite a lot of money, I think. Wind up. Position as Sariska both in to win their second Oaks for Jamie Spencer and Michael Bell. But Big Orange can, he's galloping on relentlessly. Palisades a sword fighter, fighting out second and third with Jake Zayed Road running on late. But Big Orange, this big horse, will once again put up a big performance. Back to back, Cata Goodwood Cup. And you can see those big race wins still mean the world to a man who's been a champion jockey in England and in Ireland, has ridden for all the major superpowers all around the world, and he's still going strong, or at least I think he is, Jamie Spencer. Um, welcome. Thanks very much for, for coming in. It's been a while. We've been, trying, we've been trying to do this a while, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. So something seems to crop up, but um, even uh, I couldn't get out of it this week. <laughs> so does it does it still mean as much as it looks as it means riding these big race winners? Do you still have that that hunger, that fire, that drive, that desire? Yeah, of course. You wouldn't do it otherwise. You know, it's, it's what it's all about. Just just winning is what it's all about. Um, you know, it's what we get up in the morning to do, and most of the time it's losing. But when the, when you win, it's you know it's pleasant. Are you in a, a sort of place in your career now that you're you're pretty happy with? You know who you are. You know what you want. You've got everything just how you'd like it. Yeah, but I'm pretty reali- realistic, you know. You, you, um, you know, you know what you, when you know you've got to ride. Um, sometimes good horse will come along, and sometimes you might have to wait a year or two for another good one, and you wait for a good spare ride. Or, so yeah, I'm re- I'm realistic, and as long as I'm healthy and I'm happy and I'm enjoying it, I'll continue to do so. 
1998, you rode your your first classic winner on on Tarascon in the in the Irish Guineas. Can you can you remember it very clearly <coughs> that period, or was it all a bit of a blur at the time? Um, I can remember. I can remember. I was having a brutal season anyway. I was thinking of my second, third season riding, and I'd ridden one winner, which was like on the Tuesday before. So we'd, we were whatever two and a half months into the season, I'd ridden one winner, so it wasn't going very well. And then I remember, I remember, I think on the Tuesday I rode her work with no, I had no idea I was riding her. And then when the I didn't know I was riding her until the declarations came out. I was looking at the apprentice race, seeing if I had a ride. And then Tommy Stack had never said anything to me. And then that, that morning he just said, oh, your honor. Yeah, obviously it's something you can't quantify or you'll never be able to explain properly. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I can still remember most of it. Yeah, Did I can remember ever? in the uh, after the last after my race, I went to have a shower and Mick Canan came in and he said to me, "Just you know, just sit down and take a breath." He said because he said this doesn't come around every day, and he said you'll have a lot more disappointments than than this. And, and he was right. What was it? What was it like then sharing a sort of classic weighing room with people like Kinan? Those apps that Christy Roach, Kinan, then Murta and the late Pat Smullen. Yes, you learned off them every day because, you know, it's like everything. You're, you're, you're a sponge and you, tr you try and, you know, watch things, what they're doing. Christy Roach was very good to me. Um, he used to always give us lifts racing because uh, he used to sweat at the apprentice school. So mm -hmm. even though I, I wasn't prodigy of the apprentice school I used to live there um, and he used, to, yeah, he used to look after me as well and he always looked after the apprentices and um, yeah he was good and you know Mick Canan was a man of few words uh, but like when he did say something he took heed and you know, they were all different Johnny was different you know he could be a bollock and you know, be on your case you know and he was a tough rough rider you know he's a hardy rider and, and Pat wouldn't give you an inch so it's but that was the, the dominance of Irish racing, racing at the time. And, well, the dominance that's, that's only grown and grown and grown. I mean, has that, has that surprised you at all? Or could you see even then that there were the aspects of the sport in Ireland that were just, just a little smarter and better organised? Well, I think, you know, Mick Nunn, I think he opened the doors for everybody. Um, people could see that the Irish riders were more than capable of holding out on, on the big stage and obviously you know Christy had had won derbies but you know Mick was doing it you know every week he was popping on a plane over and winning the big races so and, you know as a kid growing up you watch all that so you know, obviously you get intrigued by it all. Tommy Stack the man who trained Tarascon he he and his family have been pretty important to you down the years haven't they? Yeah well, I went to school with Fuzzy mm. so um, yeah no just you know, None of them since I was knee height of a grasshopper. Um, so, yeah, Tommy's brilliant. Give you anything, bar money. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, fantastic man, and um, yeah, he was he's always very good to me. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's you know it's, it's a long time ago since I, since I was there. Obviously, I started with Liam Brown, but I was I was at Stacks twice a week, so it was good times. And was it always? Destiny that you would you would move at some point to to the UK. Did you feel that that was that was always a likelihood when you were when you were in those early days? Yeah, um, I didn't really want to come, but um, Barney Curley convinced me. He said, you know, you need to move to England. There's there's a you know a bigger platform and 
more opportunities. Um, I can even remember coming on the eve, New Year's Eve um, of, the, of the millenniums and saying to myself, I'll give it three months. If I don't like it, I'll go home. But, you know, it's like you start having a few winners and everything seems to be going okay. I got lucky because um, Frankie had a plane crash and Kieran had his fall at Ascot and they mm. were predominantly riding for Luca Kamani. I was riding for him at Ripon and, you know, up north when he had runners. And uh, from one... You know, the start of June, they were riding them all to within three weeks, both of them were out of action for the foreseeable future. So, you know, you get a lucky break. And that's, you know, that's the way life is, you know, and you just hope you can take the opportunity. And I was, I was lucky then I had three seasons with Luca. Uh, you, you mentioned Barney Curley. Of every guest we've had on this programme, his, his interview was the one that people will always ask about. And he was a sort of, talismanic figure for, for so many. Can you try and articulate why he made your life different? What it was about him? Because uh, he, he, he didn't command respect, but you gave him respect. Um, I wasn't afraid of Barney, but I, I respected him enough that I didn't want to disappoint him. So, And there was often times I did disappoint him, but you know, essentially that was first and foremost in your mind, don't disappoint him. Because he, he really, you know, he is 100% in your corner. It's, there's nothing in it for him. And it's only because he wanted to nurture your talent and help you to be the best jockey and person you could be. So was it quite sort of arbitrary? Because obviously he had a big, strong relationship with you and with Frankie Dottori. And slightly more laterally with Tom Queeley. Are these just people that he felt a connection with, that he identified a talent in, and that he felt, for whatever reason, needed putting on the right path? Was that what was driving him? I guess so, yeah. Obviously, his son had died. Um, I met Barney a year after Charlie had died, so I, I had never met Charlie. And I guess I was of a similar age at the time, and he, you know, he nurtured my talent and... Obviously, my own father uh, passed away before then, so yeah, he was basically like a father figure to me, and I was very lucky to have him. Uh, what do you think was the most important direction that he he steered you in? What was the what was the single most important bit of advice that he he gave you? Um, he said you have all, you have loads of friends when everything's going well, obviously, and every the back patters and telling you everything's great, but. To believe in yourself when it's go when when it's going against you, you know the ball doesn't bounce your way all the time in, in no way or form of life. Um, so just to believe in yourself when it's when it's stacked against you, and I think it's it stood me in good stead. I've always even when it's going against me, I always in my mind I say, what's the worst thing that can happen? I can lose the race. You know, it's not I'm not, I haven't shot somebody. So in my mind, because you have to you have to relax, you know, and. If you go out into a race nervous or tense, well, the horse will feel it, and that's the first thing he's going to feel it, and it's a waste of time. So you just have to believe in yourself every day, whether it's, whether it's going good or bad. If you're on losing run at 25 or 30 or 50 or whatever, you still have to go out and do the exact same as you would have done. And it's easier said than done, but that's, that's, I think he, he taught me that more than anything else. And that, you know, that helps a career grow but it also helps the career uh, last and we were talking to Brendan Powell earlier in the show 
young guy still, but in his 11th season riding, started off doing great, had his issues, wheels fell off a bit, is starting to come back a little bit now. I mean, of everyone who's riding, of any international jockey, you've, you've had this in, incredibly interesting and varied and different career that's taken lots of different twists and turns and lots of different chapters. Do you think that's kind of just reflective of the person that, that you are, or is that just happenstance? Um. I think I, I give 100%, you know, off the track with, you know, riding out and doing all that sort of stuff. You have to, well, you have to enjoy it, you know. It's not really work, though, when you're enjoying it. So, um, obviously, in 2020, I had a bad injury. So mm. that that set me back more than, than I could uh, allow for at the time. And I tried to, you know, you used to, like everything, you try to rush back and you say you're fine. But even till I got, had an operation last November... Um, to get the metal work out of my leg, it's, I still had like pain the whole time. So, in going to work and, and being in pain is not it's not ideal. So, um, yeah, other than that, I think I've had a consistent like twenty five years of yeah. being very lucky. You know, every time you get a fall, Ryan had that bad fall at Goodwood. I was coming behind and basically it was like a car crash, and I injured my thumb and he got absolutely mangled. So, you know, you you. <laughs> Your luck runs out in the end, so I guess. So I, I, was, I was due a fall and I was due an injury, so that's, that's the way I look at it. It was worse than we thought, and I know you were trying to kind of keep a bit back, and I, I yeah. get that completely. Yeah, it's, you know, hip and femur is a very difficult area because obviously it's the strongest bone in your body, so when you fracture it, it's, it takes a bit of time. Um, but, yeah, I spoke a lot to Barry Garrity and about it, and like. You have huge ad admiration for them because you see, oh, he's broke his leg, he's back within three months and riding over jumps. Or Rachel Blackmore, she's come back from a bad injury. Like you, you have to admire them because you know the, the inevitability is that they're going to fall very soon. Um, whereas on the flat, yeah, you get one every now and again, but it's it's not guaranteed. Uh, uh, has that changed your mental? Mm, yeah, exactly. Touch wood. Has that changed? I'm not sure that is wood. Though. Um, has that changed your mentality? About um, about the way you you think. I mean, is that would would you have said this to me three or four years ago? The same, well, even before the injury. Well, till you experience something, you don't understand it. So you kind of just you read somebody's injured and you say, "Oh, he'll be back soon." But when you're going, the rehabilitation is the hardest part. The injury is not that bad. It's the rehabilitation is the hardest part. And just every day, um, trying to build your body back up, and yeah, it's it's demanding. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai.